Welcome to the Let's Meet for a Beer podcast, a podcast about the beer industry and so much more. My name is Mark Kondra. Each week, I sit down with the artists, scientists, and dreamers that make up our unique community. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and hopefully, you'll share this podcast with others. Thanks for listening. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Let's Meet for a Beer podcast. I'm here with my friend, Phil Bryan, Director of Brewing at Bear Hill, and that consists of Last Best, Jasper Brewing, Banff Brewing, and Campio in Edmonton. Did I forget anything? We also have Albeda, which you know is just a brand on the market to cover retail. I knew. See, I do that to piss Sock off because I have to forget <laughs> something so that if he listens to this, he's like, God, that guy's an idiot. Well, I'll convince him to listen to this. I think you what? You've had bread on so far? Yeah, you got me. We'll tick off Bryce here soon enough for the distilling side of things. It'll be good. And Bryce Sock's has been still- on. Oh, he has? Yeah. And oh, Sock shit. has been on because we talked about COVID. We had him and Bread on remotely just because at that point, everything was seemingly about to implode. And so I wanted to uh, see what the hell they were doing to keep things afloat. Well, I'm not really sure what we did, but we're still floating. So <laughs> yeah. we figured it out. Yeah. Uh, I just got to double check. Uh, swearing, yay, nay for yeah. this podcast. I wouldn't have you on if uh, swearing was not allowed. <laughs> yeah. um, now, I guess kind of one thing I should address, since you addressed the swearing, we said that's okay. A lot of people are going to say, I can't understand what he's talking about or, or what he's saying because you're Australian. So I don't know how we're going to do this, but we'll have to have some sort of translator on the podcast. Shit, fuck, mate, ass, kangaroo, buddy, meat pies, fucking AFL, can't. Is that oh, better? That's way, yeah, now you sound Australian. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Um, so should I start off by saying hello or do you prefer G'day mate or what's the... Uh... Your G'day is actually pretty good. Less forced, more natural, close your mouth and refuse to enunciate a damn thing. Yeah. And then you've got your Australian accent down perfect. So what I don't get about you people is, so my name is Mark, mm. M-A-R-K. You, I find most Australians refuse to pronounce the R in my name. It's Mac. Yeah. But then you put R's in words where there aren't R's. So, like, idea is an idea. That's us trying to adopt a Canadian accent and failing miserably. Like, okay. this is assimilation, man. Like, be nice to the immigrants <laughs> here. So, I was going to ask you, no, I was going to let you th- throw some some stuff at me, which is, before you moved to Canada, what were some of the stereotypes that you guys had of Canada? And are there any stereotypes that we live up to? I only knew fuck all about Canada. And then I decided to move here. Nice. So that seemed about it. I was just like, yeah. ah, there's mountains and it's cold, right? That seems pleasant. Yeah. So I did. It seems to me that all Canadians want to live in Australia and all Australians want to live in Canada. So is it just that human nature of you want what you don't have kind of thing. So oh, yeah. you you yeah. have the beaches and the beautiful weather. So you're like, I want the opposite of that. Yeah, 100%. Like when you've been through what counts as an Australian winter, which is, oh, it's only 23 degrees today. Yeah. And it's sunny for 90% of the time instead of 100% of the time. You're like, maybe I'll try something different with my life. Yeah. And vice versa. Like everyone jokes about how Whistler and Banff are just full of fucking Australians. And believe me, they are. You can tell because they usually have 
two casts, one on each wrist, because they <laughs> yeah, broke exactly. them, their wrist snowboarding. <laughs> Why would I need personal protective equipment or learn how to fucking ride? Yeah. You go to Byron Bay on the east coast of Australia, and it's nothing but Canadians all attending surf camps yeah. and drinking too much. Yeah. It's and just vice versa. And trying to find their way to Nimbin to get the weed. Is that still a thing? Yeah, still a thing. Yeah. It's pretty close. I mean, it's a lot easier now, but Australia, you know, decided that they didn't want to legalize weed. I think you can get medical there now, but it's not like recreational at all. Okay. So now that's another reason. Like, hey, I want to go skiing and I want to smoke a whole pile of cannabis. And then you're here for a week and the novelty is officially worn off. It's like, yeah, turns out I don't wake and bake like I thought I would. Yeah, exactly. Um, Born and raised in a town called Wagga Wagga. Yeah, that's that sounds like something right out of like the Flintstones or something like that. Is that? And I I did Google it this morning because I'm like, he's fucking you had to verify this shit. Oh, hundred percent. I had to verify everything. So let me tell you what I know about Wagga Wagga. It's uh, I looked at the map. I thought that looks like it's pretty much in between Melbourne and Sydney. Yeah, it is. According to probably Wikipedia. It's four kilometers away from being exactly between Melbourne and Sydney. See, I'm learning shit now about the town that I grew up in. Yeah. It's 13,503 kilometers from my house to Wagga Wagga. Because Google Maps told you don't try and drive this. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It straddles the Murrumbidgee River. Yep. And the population is about 55,000, 56,000 people. Which is when I grew up in Red Deer was about the same. So, So I'm guessing because the populations are the same that you grew up playing... Ice hockey. Is that right? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Now, what did you do growing up in Wagga Wagga? Uh, I left. <laughs> we moved to Sydney. <laughs> Wagga Wagga was, uh, it's like Red Deer, man. It's a town in the middle of a whole pile of wheat, just like Red Deer. Everyone wants to leave. Yeah. Yep. Or they stay. I mean, I was just back in Red Deer yesterday. How'd um, you feel? I love Red Deer. I was like, exactly like you're describing. I grew up and I wanted to leave, you know, and now I, I actually enjoy going back. Could I live there? I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, my home is Calgary. Did you grow up in Sydney then or? Yeah. So we moved to a tiny little town called Lagan, which was also in the middle of nowhere. Uh, Miserable fucking weather, lots of sheep and potatoes. First wind farms in Australia. That kind of tells you all you need to know. Yeah. Moved to Sydney and uh, grew up in Sydney and then, you know, traveled around for work for years. Brisbane, Melbourne, that kind of stuff. Do you have siblings? Yeah. I got a sis who lives in Canberra, works for the Australian Museum. Okay doing, uh, sorry, the National Museum, looking after their collection. And yeah, folks still down there, tons of family, fairly spread out. Yeah, Sydney's a great city. It's just like, it's if Toronto and Vancouver got together and had like the looks of Vancouver and then the culture of Toronto and then was actually cool. Yeah. That's not a terrible analogy. Yeah, I've I've been there. I was a lot younger, but I, I loved it. And uh, we took the ferry to... Manly? Yes. Yeah. Spend a lot of time there. Oh, yeah. Manly's fan- Manly Beach is phenomenal. Like, yeah. there's some great breweries up in that neck of the woods now. Yeah. Four Pines is over there. Actually, so I'm sure Graham's told you about this, but his brother, uh, Graham Sherman from Toolshed, yeah. his brother's a brewer as well. Um, he's the head brewer of Four Pines Brewing, which started in Manly Beach. Uh, then opened up a big production facility and then proceeded to sell out to Carlton United slash Foster's Group slash Labatt now Asahi. Sweet. Yeah. Good for them. Yeah, take that cash. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, how is Colin doing? He's doing fantastic. Oh, it's great. Yeah. yeah. We're doing a daily challenge right now to uh, try to get back into some sort of shape. You're kind of a sarcastic kind of prick. What, and, do, you mean, what do you mean, kind of, man? Okay, don't fucking I, sell me short here. I'm well, just being nice. Us Canadians don't yeah, call people completely sarcastic pricks. Sarcastic pricks. <laughs> yeah. We say you're kind of. 
But some of the advice you got from your grandma back in the day, who you say is 101 <laughs> years old. Oh, yeah. yeah. She said, Phil. And you said, yes. And she said, shut up. Yeah. That's really good advice. <laughs> I get that advice all the time. I've never taken it. Well, I had to leave because otherwise I was just going to get told too often. And then yeah. apparently it's rude to disobey your grandmother. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's considered rude. But growing up, you wanted to be an engineer and you realized that dream of becoming an engineer. What drew you to that as a profession? I'll go a little bit less sarcastic prick for a second here. <laughs> right. Can you Why? do that? <laughs> I, I can pretend. Yeah. I can pretend. I always liked the idea of doing engineering for putting practical stuff to use, as well as being, you know, a little bit analytical, fair bit mathematical. You know, I was a bit of a nerd, a bit, a big nerd. Yeah. Uh, and that seemed like a perfect expression of nerdery and creativity. And then I was incredibly lucky. One of my best mates in university was a home brewer and had been a home brewer since he was 16 years old. Wow. Because he needed to drink yeah. as a teenager and, <laughs> and his had... parents wouldn't buy him booze. So what are you going to do? So I met Stu in yeah first year university and he handed me some of his homebrew at uh, Chemical Engineering Barbecue and said, hey, you got to try this. And I said, that tastes like shit. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I've never tasted shit, but if I did, yeah, exactly. I would imagine it to taste just like this. Uh, surely I can do better. Yeah. So Stu was the one that ruined everything. And then I decided to start homebrewing and then took it up as a career. I credit him with being the person to uh, ruin my life uh, yeah. and then decide to, you know, pursue chemical engineering into brewing. But you did work as an engineer. So after you graduated, you worked as an engineer before you got into beer. Is that right? Other way around. So I was actually brewing, you know, assistant brewing at a bunch of breweries in Sydney back while I was studying. But this is pre-craft, like this is pre-boutique. This is when, you know, there weren't craft breweries. It didn't really exist as a concept. And so there were three little brew pubs in Sydney and I helped out at all three of them because they all had the same brewer because oh. <laughs> the only brewers who had jobs as brewers worked for uh, Lion Nathan, uh, Tui's. Right. And so, yeah, I worked for a guy called Jared Mears uh, for a number of years. And then because of that relationship, then when I graduated, then I went straight in into brewing. So then you yeah, traveled up to the Hunter Valley, wine country, two hours north of Sydney, beautiful, you know, super hot climate grapes. So yeah, Shiraz, Semillon, just absolutely gorgeous. And yeah, I worked at a brewery up there called Hunter Valley Beer Co. for just under a year and then moved back to Sydney to work at a place called James Squire slash Malt Shovel Brewing. So that was like the craft offshoot of Lion Nathan, who was one of the two macros. I worked with a guy there called Dr. Chuck Hahn, who a bit of a quiet legend, but uh, he's ensconced in Australia because he wants to live by the beach now. Right. Originally an American, he literally invented Coors Light. Oh, really? Yeah, for his sins. And he got banished <laughs> <laughs> down to the penal colonies. Yeah, so Chuck founded his own brewery, sold it to the big guys in the 90s, and then reopened it as Malt Shovel Brewery to be their kind of nascent craft offshoot. So okay. to put it in context, so he opened up the same year as Sierra Nevada, and then he reopened the brewery as Malt Shovel making James Squire craft beers in 1998, um, which was, you know, when Lagunitas first fired up starting to make IPAs. Right. And then over the years, grew it and grew it and grew it to the point that his brewery was a third of the craft beer market in Australia. So it was fantastic being able to work for him because even today, I realized the things that I learned there that I had no fucking clue about at the time. I was a shithead kid in my mid-20s who didn't like the fact that I had to go to work every day. But the way that they did quality, the way that they cared about brands, the way that he cared about people was something that stuck ever since. Yeah, because you consider him one of your mentors you're talking about. So, so you're in school as to become an engineer and you're obviously 
extremely involved already in the beer industry. Did you know that that's what direction your career would go once you graduated then? That comes back to my mates too. I realized back then that, you know, beer was a career that was directly aligned with the degree that I was studying. It was a happy circumstance. Yeah. You know, if I was smarter than I am, would have gone to work for the macros and made a bunch of money and shit and then fallen back into craft. But no, I went straight into working for tiny little breweries from day one. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then one of the things you, I guess, labeled as your favorite experiment was moving to Canada. When I look at what your life was like in Australia, I mean, you probably had every opportunity for, you know, the jobs within the industry that you wanted to. So a pretty big gamble to just move in, like move to a country that you don't know anything about. Was it your intention to to experience Canada or was it your intention to move to Canada? It Honestly, it was my intention to move from day one. I think everyone gets to a point in their life where they just realize that they've plateaued, they're bored, they're stale. There's nothing wrong yeah. with what you're doing at a certain point, but you realize that if you're not careful, you're going to do that for the next 20 years. Yeah. And I didn't see that as being something that I wanted to do. So I had a great job and great money, good relationship. Yeah. Loved my friends, loved my family. And I just decided, fuck it. So I threw it in and moved. What did grandma have to say about that? She said, good on you. <laughs> she awesome. moved from the UK after World War II and did exactly the same thing. Nice. She was the only person who actually understood it. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. So- when you got to Canada, did you have anything lined up? Absolutely nothing. I had a little bit of savings. I went skiing in Whistler for two weeks like every other fucking Australian. Drank a bunch, sobered up in Squamish while drinking at House Sound. I'm not sure how those two things kind of relate, <laughs> but it felt the right decision at yeah. the time. Um, yeah, bought a shitty old Ford Explorer and then went traveling around the mountains. So I ended up uh, sleeping in the back of a truck during a Canadian winter. Yeah, I was at a decent sleeping bag. It was fine. Toured across the mountains through Fernie, up through Calgary. Actually spent about a month in Canmore. Met uh, Matt from Grizzlyport at the time, another Aussie. You know, drunkenly in the bar the night before, I said, uh, hey, I used to make beer for a living. And he was like, oh, sweet. You want to come in and help out in a brew day tomorrow? And I'm like, sure. He did not believe that I was going to be at Grizzlyport at 6 a.m. the next morning. And sure enough, did. So That's hilarious. I tried to get a job with them, actually. But Michelle, their old head brewer, was like, yeah, no, I don't think you're the right fit. And yeah, Michelle's no longer in the industry. Uh -huh. so, <laughs> so then, yeah, went to... Uh, Found myself back in a hostel in Vancouver with like rapidly dwindling savings and realized, oh shit, I should probably get a job here. Yeah, I walked into the tasting room. I was randomly hooking up with this chick out in Vancouver. And then uh, I walked in and she said, oh, our company just sold a bunch of lab equipment to this new startup brewery in East Van. And I'm like, where the fuck is East Van? So then- uh, East side of Vancouver. Yeah, I figured that out. It took me a while. <laughs> <laughs> I- uh, Walked into the tasting room at P49. They were hosting a tasting session. So there were a whole pile of people there from, I think it was Van Brewers or the Vancouver Beer Awards. Anyway, Graham Witt was in there, you know, a bunch of other brewers. Dean McLeod, who was then at Lighthouse. And I just said to Graham, I saw a chemical engineering textbook on his office shelf when he was giving me a tour. And I said, oh, Perry's chemical engineering handbook. And of course, he just went, what? Do you know <laughs> what the fuck that is? Yeah. I'm like, yeah, man, same. And I said, oh, by the way, I need a job. And he said, all right, send me a resume. And I had a job three days later. That was P49. So I was there for the first year and it was chaos, pure chaos. Like, I don't think I've seen that level of growth from many breweries. Oh, really? Yeah. Like P49 went from zero to just under 7,000 heck in 12 months. Wow. 
Yeah, and three rounds of expansion, putting in packaging lines, optimizing all of this kind of stuff and cranking it out. Kudos to their sales team, like especially Jeff Herkett, who's now with Crohn's, I'm selling really, really nice, expensive uh, packaging equipment. So yeah, Jeff drove the, the draft sales in a killer way. Um, and that has sort of really established an amazing foundation. So yeah, those guys, it was pretty crazy. And then of course, me being, like you said, a sarcastic prick, I pissed off my owners and they eventually fired me. So, <laughs> and then uh, for those sins, I ended up, uh, you know, hooking up with the guys from Bear Hill, moving to Jasper, and here we are. So, you get fired yeah. for doing something probably woefully inappropriate. Oh, I asked one of the owners to help. To help? Yeah. Clean up the shit, which they just left. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. was not okay. Not okay. <laughs> not okay at all. Yeah. So, how did you go from that to, like, how did you meet the guys from Bear Hill because it seems to me that it's been a pretty good relationship. You obviously enjoy it. How did you connect with them? We actually met uh, through Don Moore, who many people in the industry know, works for Canada Malting and has done for years. Yeah. When Don Moore was consulting, he helped uh, the Bay Hill guys open Jasper. Okay. Way back in the day. So when I was in DC for the Craft Brewers Conference in 2013, uh, that April, I think it was, I met the guys from Bear Hill in the back of a cab with Brett, Sock, and Alex and me trying to find somewhere that would serve us a beer after hours. Uh-huh. <laughs> so three separate cabbies saw us coming from a mile away. They're just like, oh, yeah, yeah. No, I'm going to drive you to this bar, walk through the back, ask for grace, but be really polite about it. You know, and then she might actually serve you a beer under the table. Go to this Chinese restaurant, go upstairs. Yeah, Mary's there. Mary will serve you booze in a teapot. But again, got to be really polite about it. And Brett Island, of course, is sitting there saying, polite? I'm fucking Brett. I'm Canadian. If anybody can be polite, it's me right here. And of course, we did not get any beer. (laughs) (laughs) I thought of all the guys that you're just describing, Brett had the best chance of being played oh yeah totally this was just cab drivers selling fucking tourists a goddamn song yeah uh, and we bought it hook line, hook line and sinker i love it how long have you been with bear hill then june 4th 2013 so it was later that year that we were on our it's when you realize how gigantic alberta is yeah right like it's insane but honest to god and i've talked about this a lot that was such a cool experience for me to be able to see all the different places because it was, it was just before Last Best had opened. Yep. Because everywhere we went, you had relatively young teams at all the breweries, but they were so professional. That's what kind of, I guess, struck me. You know, when we would show up, they'd be excited to see you guys. And then it would be back into like, you know, this very professional mode. So they were able to balance the fun and the professionalism, which I thought was really cool because I don't know, I don't know if I was like consciously thinking about it, but I thought it would be a little bit more into the let's have fun and less into the let's also be professional. So that was a really cool experience. But I remember at that time as well, you were kind of fighting with the government to some degree because they wanted to send you back. Am I remembering that right? Yeah, I went through the fucking ringer with immigration. It was rough. This is going back a little bit, but uh, the story goes that my work visa was up. My working holiday visa was up. Sorry, I needed to apply for a new one. Had the application in, no problems. And then what happened was that uh, this was at the time that media broke the story that certain McDonald's and Tim Hortons franchisees were paying temporary foreign workers under the table in cash for less than minimum wage. And Stephen Harper very sensibly said, this is fucked and abolished the entire temporary foreign worker program and said, we're going to be moving immigration away from a sort of provinces get to decide who they want to have come, which was the program that I'd applied under. 
and towards a points-based system, which is you know how most developed countries in the world do it. So anyway, it basically threw the entire process at Immigration Canada into chaos, and I got caught up in that. And I ended up, yeah, spending about six months where technically I couldn't leave the country because then I didn't have a valid visa to get back in. Went through three different extensions, eventually had to drive to the border at, uh, at Coots uh, with a massive stack of paperwork from Jake over at National, from us, from Canada Malting, demonstrating that there was an economic benefit to me being in Canada. And our immigration lawyer had said at the time, she said, this is a 50-50 toss-up. This is the last resort and this may fail. So I had to be prepared that we would drive to the border, plead our case to let me stay and keep working and maybe get deported that same day. You've got three days to leave the country. Wow. So yeah, we went down there and we handed him a massive fucking stack of files then sat in an immigration office for five hours uh, with me and Brett, fairly stressed, as you can imagine. Came back out, asked us a bunch of questions and then came down to it and said, okay, you're about to open a new business. You're about to employ two new Canadians at the time we can see that there's a valid argument here. You need to be working so that we can create economic benefits. So for a brief period, I had this beautiful little visa that said, Philip Bryan, significant economic benefit to Canada. (laughs) So they let me stay, fools, and uh, I've been here since. That's really cool. So what was your first role with Bear Hill? Where were you brewing? Yeah, so I was the head brewer at Jasper. Went up there, was working with a younger guy, John Palco, who'd started off in Banff under Kyle and then been asked to go and help out. Dave Moselle, who's you know now up at Folding Mountain and, and ex-Olds uh, College, had just left to head back to the East Coast. So yeah, I was the head brewer at Jasper, tightened a few things up there. And then Brett said, hey, can you just look after all of the breweries? So within a, a few months, yeah, I sort of moved into a brewery operations manager role. And then within six months, we sort of coalesced our head office down in Calgary. So that was you know June through to December. You know, we had a functional head office in Calgary, moved down in December of that year. And then uh, we were sitting in our AGM in early December when the AGLC announced that they were abolishing the minimum production requirements and allowing self-distribution for small brewers. And that was when we cracked beers in our AGM and said, fuck yes, it's on. So that was three months before we took over the old Brew Brothers space for Last Best. And then that year, 2014, was just basically construction and getting Last Best established and cranking out a whole pile of beer from the middle of a construction site. And yeah, it's been pretty much on the up and up since. That's it. So you have four locations mm. and all of them are so unique, Yeah, right? I have to say, I haven't been to Campio to see the production there, but Jasper, like tiny space, Banff, tiny space, and then the old Brew Brothers, so last best, like tiny. So they're like they're physically challenging places to brew beer for the brewers. Is that a fair, is that a nice way of saying it? Uh, can you not tell them that? Because yeah. I don't want them to actually realize the truth. Yeah, um, exactly. No, guys, it's easy. No, it's fine. It's, don't worry about it. They're all like this. Yeah. No sense yeah, even it's, looking it's at simple. other places. Yeah, exactly. If anybody out there who's looking to open a brewery is listening, yeah. for God's sake, don't put fucking brew houses on the second floor of buildings. Yeah. That's a nightmare. We've had a good run making great spaces work and shoehorning breweries into them. Right. Making great locations work as breweries, not making breweries into good locations. Yeah. yeah. I think that a lot of people are realizing this now that, yeah, rent might be cheaper in an industrial park, but not that many people want to go to an industrial park in the far-flung nowheres on the outskirts of cities. It's better to find the best location that you possibly can yeah. in for the community that you're in. The brewery stuff you can figure out. At the end of the day, and this sounds really blasé, but at the end of the day, yes, it's going to cost you more, 
to squeeze a brewery into a shitty location, but you'll make that back tenfold on having a functional, good tasting room. It forces you to be creative too with the space, right? Like you don't have just this unlimited amount of space or say, oh, we'll just take over another thousand square feet or whatever because you don't have that luxury. So it's kind of like, okay, let's make this work within the confines of the space. Yeah, absolutely. And this is where the, the brewing side of things really starts to intersect with the business management. A lot of people kind of look at it and say, well, we, we bought a brew house and that's the core of our business. And these days, that's totally wrong. Right. You're not running a brewery. You're running an experience center and you're running a room for your community to come together in. That's the thing that matters. Like our industry has shifted so much. And, you know, when I say that, you know, I was brewing back in Australia in brew pubs when it was still boutique beer. Back then, we didn't really know where the future was going to lie. And now it's laid out in front of us. And it's painfully obvious that the one place you need to be as a brewery is a place where people can come together. That's the only thing that matters. Right. And if you're doing that in Pincher Creek, if you're doing that in Lundbreck, if you're doing that in Grand Prairie, it's the same story over and over and over again. So many people get into this industry thinking that they're going to become the next Steam Whistle or the next Sierra Nevada or the next Lagunitas. And it's like, yeah, maybe, but you've got a good business and a great life focusing on your small town and your local community. Right. And that's where making the brewery part of it a little bit more difficult than it should be, but making the room and the, the stuff that your customers, your guests, people actually get to experience the focus, that's what's important. So what's interesting about that, that answers my next question, which was when I look at all four of your locations, they're all so much different from each other. And when you look at it from a business perspective, it would be so much easier if you just turned it into a cookie cutter operation and said, let's just make all of them the same. You will, you know, we'll make all of the menus the same, everything that way, the way we train the people will be the same, but obviously you didn't do that. So does that come back to that, that concept of you need to serve the community that you're in? 100%. That's the single biggest strength and the single biggest focus of our entire operation is if we're doing our jobs properly, what we should be doing is scaling and reflecting the values and the needs of our local communities, whatever they are. Right. And we know that they'll be different. Everyone kind of looks at Banff and Jasper, for example, and says, well, they're two mountain towns, tourist markets, too many Australians in one, probably almost too many Australians in the other. They look at those two things and assume that they're going to be the same. Yeah. But what people and locals, especially in Jasper, want is very different to what people and locals in Banff want. Yeah. They want different beers. They want different flavor profiles. They want to have a different experience. Banff is the place you go to get absolutely shit canned on a Friday and a Saturday from Calgary. It's Vegas of the Rockies. Jasper is the place that you go because you want to have a cabin in the woods experience and then go and hike a mountain with a hangover. Yeah. You're still going to drink. Yeah. But in Jasper, you might actually get to the top of the hill. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's funny too because so many people try to compare Banff and Jasper and they say, well... You know, Jasper is for Edmonton what Banff is to Calgary, and it's it's just not like the two towns are so different because obviously Sock and Brett and Alex all like they were born and raised in Jasper, and having built that one out first, and I know talking to them in the past, they learned that community lesson 
so much there because they almost took for granted that, well, we're here, we're from here, people are just going to support us. And being young entrepreneurs realized quickly that that wasn't the case. They had to dial things in. This is the important thing. And one of the unique aspects of craft beer in Alberta, this is the first place that I've seen where breweries started springing up in small towns first. You know, before we reached a critical mass of breweries in Calgary and Edmonton, yeah. we had breweries in a lot of tiny little towns. Oh, yeah. And so the biggest advantage that you have there is that, yes, you got an upside and there's an advantage of getting started, but you can't take it for granted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you might be a local kid who's done well and you've decided that you're going to open a brewery locally, but that only goes so far. You can't take people for granted and you can't fuck it up. As our company, yeah, like I'm sure Brett and Sock can speak to this better than I can, but they acknowledged that the community support was the only thing that got them through the difficult first couple of years. And that they then realized, holy shit, we've got to focus on this. This is what actually matters. And so now the challenge for us, four locations, big retail operation, got distilling, you know, stuff happening off to the side as well. That's the core of what creates value for Bear Hill, and that's what we need to focus on. And it gets more and more difficult the bigger we get to bring those things to the fore. So that's our biggest challenge at work is to say our opinion of people sitting in head office in downtown Calgary doesn't matter. What matters is what our team in Jasper say they want, what our team in Edmonton say they want, what our team in Banff say they want. Taking the community that you're in and kind of trying to be a reflection of that community versus coming in and saying, this is what you need as this community. So, which is easier said than done. Like I said, it'd be way easier to just be like, nope, this is our concept and everywhere we go, this is what we're rolling out, right? Exactly. Yeah. Come back to a comment that you just made. So years ago, when you look at that franchise model, because that's what it is, franchise chain restaurants exist all the way across North America. The business model is well established. And there's a handful of companies in the US who've managed to achieve success through the exact same model in brew pubs, notably Rock Bottom and Gordon Biersch, who are now all owned by the same company based out of Denver. So they've got hundreds of locations across the US. And we talked to some sort of franchise experts, some you know consultants in that space years ago, and they looked at our model, which was unique brands, totally different beers, totally different menus, totally different approaches, and said, you guys are fucking idiots. Like, how the hell do you expect to scale if every time you open a new location, it's something completely new? And we said, oh, we'll figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you got to start first and then figure it out after. You exactly. Know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So now the challenge is like, we have, for my brewers specifically, this is the brewery side and the financial side are probably more of the easier ones to run in our business because brewing is a process. So to achieve the quality that we expect, we say, okay, these are the process steps that you need to follow. But what you put into the beers and how you make them, that's totally up to our head brewers. And then on the financial side, on the business management piece, if we're achieving budgets, if we're not spending more than we earn, then we're good. The rest of it, the day-to-day operational decisions about what our teams do and how they do it, that's up to them. Yeah. When you guys have some, like, you know, Kyle being Hmm. one of your head brewers and and just... Such a smart guy, but, you know, he's a Banff kid, right? Yep. And uh, came through the whole Bear Hill experience. I know when I first met him was when we were in Fort Mac and I was interviewing him for a little video we're doing. And I'm like, wow, did you have to be this hungover? But <laughs> it just, he, he just, he embodies exactly what you guys are all about, right? Like he's, he's a Banff kid. He's just super authentic. And I think that uh, 
you need that with what you guys are doing. Kyle is amazing. I literally couldn't do my job without him helping out. So he runs operations for all of our Alberta sides or everything yeah. retail. And it's super important to us that we have somebody helping out from the strictly head office view yeah. that came through the system. You know, born and raised in Banff, went to Australia, drank too much, came back. Still drinks too much. Still drinks too much. Hey, he's settled down now, man. He's like got a girlfriend, a yeah, dog. Yeah, but that's just you comparing him to what he was. <laughs> like, you know, he's like he's settled down compared to what he was. But compared to another human, he's still, I'm just kidding. Hey, let's not dive yeah. down a relativistic philosophy <laughs> yeah. hole. Like, yeah, 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 that's that's a bad place to be. <laughs> no, it's really important that. As we grow, the people who are making decisions about the way to grow actually understand it from the ground level. Yeah. 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 Born and raised in Banff, ran Banff Ave for us, then ran Wood Buffalo in Fort McMurray, and then moved down to Calgary, helped me run Last Best for a bit, and now runs Ops for Arbita. That's awesome. You know, looking at the way that you guys are, so you have the four unique locations, but then you have Alberta. Maybe talk a little bit about what Alberta is then. Alberta is a brand that was too good to not use. Yeah. And we struggle with Alberta all the time. Because I've already talked about how the core philosophy of our business is to scale stuff which is local and authentic. Yeah. But Alberta isn't that. It's a cool brand that represents the entire province, but it isn't where we have a physical location. And it doesn't reflect the needs of a specific local community. Yeah. So we talk about Alberta a little bit differently. It's Fucking killer on merch. Yeah. Um, you know, it's amazing. People want hats and tees and turks with Alberta on them all the time. But really, it's a bit of a catch-all to reflect the craft industry within the entire province. Right. But we've really struggled with how to use Alberta well um, without letting it dominate things because, frankly, it represents a little bit of a corporate head office mentality, you know, coming back in over the top. So the way that we talk about it is that it's... It's what we use to, rep to sort of uh, pull our sales team together. So when they're out there talking to liquor store customers, to, to bars and restaurants, they know, oh, yeah, this is, you know, you're the Alberta guys. You're from Bear Hill. You represent these brands. But it's not really something that we try and push too much on the actual consumer end. So it's an industry catch-all so that people can say, oh, yeah, you're part of the one group. But it's not something which consumers say, oh, yeah, this is Alberta brewing. Yeah. Well, it's funny because you're letting all the other all the locations kind of evolve organically. And then there's this thing where it's just like, you almost want to let that evolve organically too. But then at the same time, you want to also maybe have like a specific story to tell. Like, you know what I mean? So I can see the, the contradiction. But you, like you said, it is cool. Literally, every time I get like an Alberta shirt or a hat or whatever, I'll have a friend or a cousin over or whatever, and it goes missing, like without <laughs> fail. I've never, ever been able to successfully have something. So for, what I'm hearing is that I need to drop off some more merch up here. Yeah, a little bit of a hint, a little bit of yeah. a hint, yeah. yeah. So I guess looking at what you guys are doing, but then also looking at the the industry in general, because you, you have a really good perspective locally, but also internationally. What do you see as some of the trends that are that are coming up? Like, How do you see the industry evolving in the next few years? Yeah, it's a bit of a challenge and it really depends on how big you currently are and how big you want to get to. If your aspirations are a small community-based tasting room brewery in whatever suburb, whatever town that you're in, and that's the end of it, you have a roadmap laid out in front of you. Focus on your guests, focus on your consumers, focus on the tasting room experience, and you'll be successful. It's as honestly as simple as that. If your aspirations are to become the next regional player, 
you know, to sell beer across the, the province, maybe to, you know, start to sell it interprovincially, then you've got a way harder road ahead of you. And if your aspirations are to be international, you're in the wrong country to do it. Okay. I don't think that many people within Canada realize quite how restricted the opportunities are for growth. We have arguably one of the most restricted trade environments for an industry with provincial regulation of alcohol, individual regulatory barriers put up across the entire country. And what it means is that it's nigh on impossible to grow effectively and you're beset with massive barriers all the way along the way. Whether they're things like selection panels in Ontario, whether it's things like warehousing requirements in Quebec, whether it's things like really a two-speed distribution system in BC, where the two-thirds of the market, which is private, pays way more to get their beer to market than the one-third who manages to to access the government system. Alberta's unique and it's the only privatized province, but we still have a relatively controlled distribution tier. And so that means that you're forced basically to use Connect if you really want to touch everywhere within the province. And what that means is that you're really capped by how big the craft beer market is as a share of the overall market and which province you want to play in. I like to draw the parallel between where we are here locally in Alberta, Canada, and say Australia. Similarly sized country, same challenges of geography, but a completely privatized liquor model. There's no such thing as state regulation. In Australia, you pay your excise tax to the feds and then the feds take that money and divvy it out. Excise rates are higher than they are here, but there's no barriers to growth. You've got to negotiate with the grocery duopoly and liquor stores and large chains and all of that, but that's no different to talking to Liquor Depot and talking to RCLS. Right, right. And the difference there is that there are tens pushing into the hundreds now of independent successful craft breweries who are up in the tens of thousands of hectoliters per year. And there are successful examples of breweries there who are 150,000 heck a year and they've only existed for 15 years. So that's the comparison. A company which is as old as ours, 15 years, 16 years old now, is 10 times bigger than what we are because they don't have those barriers to growth. Because I mean, obviously, if you grow up in this market, you're just used to it, right? So you don't you you don't have that perspective. So I'm going to do my best not to compliment you uh, when I talk <laughs> about this. But one of the things, and I do, because I talk to a lot of people in the industry, and, and your name comes up quite a bit. If someone needs help or if someone needs something, you're oftentimes there. And I, I've I've talked to people who said, oh yeah, Phil said that if I need. And I said, if Phil says that he'll help you with something, like take him up on it because yeah. he will. So you have that reputation in the industry as being someone who is an open book to, to share your knowledge with other people. Where does that philosophy come from for you? I think it comes from two places. One, it's very personal. We only create a great craft beer community if we're willing to help everybody else in it. And the second thing the only way we grow as a collective industry is by sharing best practices and best knowledge. The opportunities for growth, and this links back to your previous question, the opportunities for growth are not going to come from nitpicking at each other, saying, oh, my IPA is better than your IPA. The opportunities for growth come from the 80% of the market, which is currently controlled by three brewers, and who we know have been putting out Good, well-made professional beer, but really fucking boring for decades. Us focusing just on the craft beer segment of the market that, you know, around just less than 20% 
is not where there's opportunities for growth. The growth comes from tackling the 80. And from stats that we see in the States specifically, we know that 60% of consumers drink craft beer occasionally. But still, what we see is that the craft beer market share in the US is a pretty much a mirror of Alberta, just a little bit less than 20. So then the question is, okay, if 60% of people are drinking craft beer every now and again, why are they not drinking it all the time? Why is the market share of craft beer not 60%? And in the most progressed states, Oregon, for example, it is. It is. That's where they've managed to get to. So the reason why I'm I say this to everyone. If there's something I can help with, is there something which we can help with? Just ask. We'll be there. Is because this is how we tackle it. We tackle it collectively. And that doesn't just come from a, I'm having a problem with yeast. It doesn't just come from a technical brewing side of things. It's also, this is the sales strategy. This is how we beat big beer. Mm-hmm. So when I was working in BC back in 2012, 2013, uh, craft beer was, you know, where Alberta was eight years ago, I think, you know, around about that sort of like six to 7% market share. BC more broadly now, I think is pushing 35, 40% market share and in the lower mainland, it's higher. So that compares to where we're at in Alberta right now, where we have 14.5%, which is Alberta small brewers. Um, note that that doesn't include Wild Rose or Bandit anymore because, you know, they're owned by a big brewer, so they're no longer on that technical classification. But if you factor in Alberta small brewers, you factor in those guys' craft, you factor in interprovincial craft, we're pushing around that 20. BC is almost double that for being our next-door neighbors with a more restrictive distribution system. So obviously, they were a few years ahead with minimum production requirements and all of that jazz, but that's been removed now for eight years. So what happened in BC was that it's a way more competitive environment And early on in 2012, 2013, 2014, a lot of breweries were opening up, which were quite sizable. You know, Phillips, Driftwood, Vancouver Island, P49, Central City, all of these guys built pretty big production breweries, which then meant that they got to leverage their size and their scale to be way more efficient. We haven't seen that in Alberta. And their ability to be efficient then led to price and competition. So in BC, what happened over the course of about five, six years was that prices started to come down as craft breweries competed with each other for the same shelf slots in a tiny segment of the industry and the same taps in a tiny segment of the industry. So what's seen as a normal keg price in BC is like 160 to 180 bucks for a 50 liter. What we see as a normal keg price in Alberta is like 200 to 230. So when those breweries in BC competed with each other with the efficiency and those kind of strengths behind them, the second that their price point got less than macro is the second that they started to beat macro. As soon as your six-pack is 50 cents a buck cheaper than the equivalent macro beer, when a consumer drinker goes into a liquor store and sees that, that's when they say, oh shit, maybe I'll see what this craft stuff is all about. And that was the moment that macro suddenly went, oh, fuck, we don't have an answer to this. They suddenly said, we've relied on heavy marketing and controlling the sales channels to maintain our dominance. What they weren't able to do is answer the horde of new craft beer, interesting craft beer, great brands, great community interactions, great marketing, and that was being super competitive. So this is the answer for everybody out there listening in Alberta. Focus on your sales strategy, focus on your price. If you can price your premium beers a little bit less than macro, why the hell would anybody drink a Molson Canadian? 
Why the hell would they drink a bud? Interesting. Can that be a slippery slope though? Like when you start competing in price? Absolutely. The challenge then is that, you know, we're talking about the long term where beer will flop out and there will always be a segment of drinkers who are just drinking for effect. Yeah. Results based yeah. <laughs> drinkers. Yeah. You know, and that's where discount plays in. Macro brewers will always be able to make beer cheaper than we can. What they can't do is have a brand that people actually feel great about drinking because they know us. They can walk into our locations. So price is a lever that you can pull. You don't have to pull on it that hard. And all the time. And all the time. Like with all the different brands and stuff like that, right? Yeah. So for us, and this is me out here helping, we have a price strategy across our portfolio of stuff in retail, which is very varied. We have some beers which are on the lower end. We have some beers which are on the upper end. And then, of course, we play selling four packs of Tall Boys for, you know, selling them for 17, 18 bucks, just like everyone else does. Right. As long as you've got something that hits what somebody wants to drink and it's a good product and it has a great brand and they know that you actually care, then that's a hell of a lot stronger than a marketing budget that Labatt can bring to the table to try and push more kokanee. Yeah. You gave me a big list of people that you've trained as a team and then have left. It's an impressive list. And it reminded me of a quote, and I've seen it on LinkedIn and a lot of other places, and it's always kind of attributed to different billionaire CEOs. But it's, it's something to the to the effect of, what if we train people and they leave? Yeah. And then the counter is, what if we don't, <laughs> don't train, train people and, and they, they stay? stay. Yep. So for you, it's kind of bittersweet, I would imagine, in that you train these people and then they go on to help build other breweries in that you must be proud of the fact that they're going on and they're they're and they're doing this at the same time it's like okay now i got to train this person or something like that or how does it how does it feel when when this is happening or are you just aware that this is always going to be the case i've always been aware of it and i've always pushed it mm-hmm. so Jen, who worked at Last Best for a couple of years and mm-hmm. just left and is now setting up Wild Winds down in Pincher Creek, she was kind of taken aback when we first sat down for an interview because I said, what do you want to do long term? And she said, uh, I'm not sure. And I said, by the way, you're allowed to answer that question with the answer, I want to work for you for two years, learn all your shit, and then leave and start my own shop. And she yeah. was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> and now that's exactly what she's doing. We define ourselves by the success of the people who've come through and then left and then moved on to other things. That's the single best thing that we can do. Yeah. I don't expect that somebody's going to work in, like we said, a tiny, you know, difficult to work in, you know, compressed brew pub for the rest of their career. That would be ridiculous. Yeah. What I do hope is that people learn a bunch from the way that we do things and then they go on to do better. So, yeah, the list, I actually had a you know, warm and fuzzies last night when I was sending this your way because I suddenly realized like, shit, we've got, there's some great people who have come through Bear Hill. I'm immensely proud of that. Is Natasha the last one to have left? Yeah. She went to establishment. Yeah. They all surprised me when it happens, I think, and then you get used to it and then it's kind of like, she was such a good fit for you guys and she was doing some good things, but uh, establishment is doing insane things oh, too, hey? right So now. yeah, it was, it's kind of like, oh, that sucks. But then I'm like happy for her yeah. and for them. I'm like, oh, good for them though. So outside of work, you describe yourself as functionally married to a woman <laughs> named Linda. Yeah. Um, that's a very engineering term to describe <laughs> uh, a marriage. So by functionally, do you mean happily? 
<laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, we've been living together for years now. We have a dog. We've got a house. Uh, yeah. We're heavily ensconced. You know, Linda's great. She's a physician by trade, works in mental health. So speaking of helping the industry, like we drink too much, we have bad backs. We These days, we generally have some pretty fucking poor thoughts in our heads as well. So yeah. I will say this. Everyone's found COVID incredibly difficult. There are resources out there to help. Um, if you want to reach out, reach out. Absolutely. I guess to that point, where do people go when they do need help? Because one of the things that I'm always very clear with for myself is I can listen to someone if they need to to talk to someone, but probably taking my advice probably isn't a good thing to do. So, so if someone does need help, like, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, but like, what should they do? Like, who, who should they reach out to? Yeah, reach out to the Alberta crisis lines if things are really bad. Okay. Also, talk to your local doctor. You usually need a referral to go to some of the other mental health resources. And Linda works for an organization called Alpod. It's a specialist group of family doctors who focus on mental health. Okay. And these days, it's all done online and video conferencing. So it's COVID-friendly. And, you know, I'm not ashamed to say it. I actually started utilizing the resources of Alpod earlier last year. Yeah. I was in a bad place. COVID was really weighing down hard. And the hardest part was not being able to get back to Australia and see my family. Mm -hmm. They were going through some shit and I couldn't be there. And that was the hardest part of it. So, and what I found was that simply talking to somebody who has the professional training to listen and coach you for the right kind of developing and coping mechanisms was the biggest shift in my personal mental health that I've had, I think, in my entire life. Yeah. And it shifted my perspective and my general outlook on life for massively towards the positive. It's hard to be happy, and it's especially hard to be happy in an industry when everybody expects that you're just living your best life. Right. When you know that deep down there's some things that you can't control. So I would say, yeah, step one, if things are really bad, call the crisis hotline. There's trained people on the other end. And if beyond that, talk to your family doc. And if you don't have one, go to a walk-in and ask them about the mental health resources that are out there. Yeah. When I was asking about, you know, what gives your life purpose and you said having a challenge, we're not meant to be content. It fucks us up. And so going back to kind of what you're saying with mental health is I think that some people think that life is, you're supposed to be happy all the time. Yeah. And no. to me, it's like, you know, if you have a purpose or if you have a meaning that you're kind of motivated to to achieve, you you know that you won't always be happy on the journey to to achieve that. So to me anyway, what I've realized is that it's more important to have meaning in my life than it is to have constant happiness in my life. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I think about when we all agree that we're actually at our best and it's when we hit flow. Mm -hmm. You know, you hit peak flow state and in the brewery behind a bar, we know that feeling. We've had those days where everything is going right, mm -hmm. where we are just on top of shit. You know, you're tuning out with a background noise, you're tuning out the other people around you, you're on the brew house, you're octopusing behind a bar, you're pouring seven, you know, serving seven people at the wood while filling a complete white out of orders. Yeah. And yet you're actually in the middle of it. Those are the moments that we feel the happiest because we're actually challenged at that time, but yeah. we're staying on top of it. And all of a sudden, like four hours have went by. Exactly. Like, what, what just happened? Yeah. But yeah. yeah, no, I would agree with that for sure. 
So I think this is a, a little bit of a rabbit hole, um, I might say, but you, you said your strangers have it, mm. obsessing over urban form, <laughs> urban design, economics, and the effects on everyday life. Yeah. When you say that, I'm assuming you're looking at it with the brain of an engineer. Is that fair to say? A little bit. But one of the things that I realized many years ago is that engineers are terrible fucking people to design cities. <laughs> oh, I thought you were just going to end it. People. <laughs> Yeah, no, I was really lucky years ago to work for, uh, I consulted actually for about three and a half years with an organization called Manides Roberts, oh, a small boutique consulting firm back in, in Australia, focused on urban development and growth. And one of the partners and the founders of that firm, Jeff Roberts, is now the chief commissioner for Sydney. So his job is to look at, okay, how does a physically constrained city of five plus million people grow and best service the needs of its communities over the next 50, 100 years. Jeff's a fascinating dude. So we focus on the infrastructure space. And the reason for that's very simple. It costs a lot of fucking money. So there's a lot of opportunity for a business to grow. Fair. But the thing that we did at Manitis Roberts was we focused on the personal aspect and the way that roads, bridges, tunnels, you know, new developments new railways, all of that stuff, how it actually services the needs of the people who use it. Engineers, and the reason why I say engineers are terrible people to build cities, will look at a railway and say, well, it needs to go from A to B. And there's going to be stations here, 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 and here. And the reason why we couldn't put them there is because it's easy to clear the land or it's going to be cheap. And we would go in and say, that doesn't make any fucking sense. Why are we not looking at how we can maximize the connectivity of various communities along the way? Why are we saying it has to go from A to B and assuming a whole pile of stuff around various construction methods and blah, 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 without actually recognizing that there's other constraints and the most important ones are how it benefits those communities for the long term. Right. So this is something where the transport economics world is super interesting, where once upon a time you used to justify the cost of building a new road by saying, well, it's going to save you know an average of 3.6 minutes of travel time and that's worth Y dollars and you add up the number of people who are going to use it and that's worth Z. There's your economic benefit. Right. And these days what we're trying to do is to say, okay, what's the economic benefit of creating a more walkable community? What's the economic benefit of meaning that people don't need to own a car because we're creating more sustainable communities? And this is something where I get fascinated looking at Alberta, because it's actually a lot more progressive than people give it credit for. Edmonton last year, this story went totally under the radar. Last year in June, Edmonton became the first city in Canada to completely do away with minimum parking requirements for new developments. This directly affects breweries. You want to build a brewery, and previously the city used to say, well, if you're going to have 10 people working there as your staff and you've got an occupancy limit of 85 for your tasting room, then you need to have seven parking stalls. And we've been arguing with the cities for years over this, saying, well, it's a fucking brewery. Like, people aren't driving here that often, and the ones that are are Ubering. So yeah, why? we shouldn't be encouraging them to drive Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How about, can we at least, you know, meet halfway and say we're going to, put in four parking stalls, and then we're going to put in 20 bike racks. Mm -hmm. And more progressive cities have been actually coming to the table with that. Edmonton decided to go completely over the top in a beautiful way and say, we're getting rid of it completely. Because the long-term future of cities is not going to be as car-centric as it has been. We can see right now that we're almost at the point where we have self-driving cars. You combine that with Uber, and then suddenly we don't need our own vehicle. Right. Well, and if you create a structure where it is car centric, then people will be 
car centric. So if you have in mind the idea that you want people to be able to walk through their community and you make it easier for them to do, they will make that choice. Exactly. And that's what we've seen with the increased density in cities around the world. And it's, I mean, Vancouver is a classic example. It's really, really tightly constrained by geography. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why house prices are as high as they are, is that it's just really hard to build new residences. Yeah. So Edmonton's example for totally abolishing parking is the most progressive thing that any Canadian city has done. And yet, I don't think anybody at Edmonton even knows. And yet, it directly affects our industry. There's a lot of neat things about Edmonton. I went to school there. That's a neat thing. Uh, (laughs) But um, just their their pathways. I mean, like the amount, like that's when I really started to get into running because you can, they have more green space. Don't quote me on this, but I think the only other city in North America that has more park space, green space is New York City because yeah, of Central, Central Park. Park. Yep. But um, literally along the river, like you can go for a run every day, every day of the year and you like, you have a unique route. Like it's so cool. Yeah. Like, so Calgary, for example, has more separated pathways of any city in the world. Yeah. And which then means that you can connect communities by biking, you know, walking, running, in a way that's not possible. And we've done that in a winter city, for fuck's sake. Yeah. Like, you know, if you can't do that in a city where the sun shines 12 months of the year, then I don't know what the fuck you're trying to do. Yeah. So, yeah, coming back, I mean, Calgary is really interesting because it's, yeah, politics here is a bit of a mess. But uh, there are a lot of good things which are starting. The Green Line, which is looking to link, you know, suburban communities, which have only ever been car-focused communities, now looks to link them to downtown. The fact that Calgary City finally managed to get a deal done with with CSE, Calgary Sports and Entertainment. And we're now looking at a new rink being built in downtown Calgary connected to a new underground train station then means that we don't quite need the same level of parking spaces around, which then frees up everything in terms of downtown Calgary to create more sustainable communities. And what it means for the handful of breweries in the area, Cold Garden, all beautiful, you guys are fucking set. (laughs) (laughs) That's cool. So you mentioned Jeff Roberts, who is Mm. another one of your mentors. And uh, you said that he taught me how to give a shit in a constructive way without being too much of an obstinate. And then you use the C word there, (laughs) um, which as a Canadian, I'm not allowed to use. But apparently as an Australian, you're allowed to use basically in every other sentence is what I've come to find out. I think I've managed to dodge the C bomb so far in this chat, which is like, it's it's been difficult for me. Yeah, yeah. Why did the C bomb, again, if you watch British television, like a Ricky Gervais show or something like that, he drops it all the time. Any Australian that I've ever met drops it all the time. But the C word didn't make its way to Canada in terms of being socially acceptable to use as an adjective or as a verb or as a noun. Like, you know, like you use it about as loosely as the word fuck, basically, right? Yeah, but you've got to keep it in the pocket, you know? Like if you're going to roll out some powerful swear words, (laughs) like bring the big guns to the table, it's got to be a tactical kind of use. Yeah. Uh, no, I think that the reason why Canadians don't use it is that uh, the French ruined everything okay. and said, yeah, no, that's English and yeah. we don't want none of that. Okay. So, yeah. we're going to blame French people. Obviously. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're kidding, of course, of course. You had mentioned about, you know, when COVID started and, and really having a hard time not being able to get back to Australia and, and seeing your family. Uh, I wanted to ask you about, you know, when COVID is over and let's hope it's sooner rather than later. 
what is your next adventure? Is it, it, will it be to go to Australia and see family? Yeah. Yeah. I really need to get back there. Like I said, my family's been going through some shit and that's been pretty tough. So yeah, that's first board of call. And then uh, the next adventure is just to start traveling again, like yeah. everyone. Yeah. And it was weird when COVID hit. So Linda and I, she was actually in India. Uh, and had to fly back to Canada, you know, on emergency kind of COVID flights when everyone realized, oh shit, this yeah. shit's getting bad. Yeah. So she uh, landed uh, back in Calgary on her birthday uh, and then proceeded to immediately go and get a fucking nasal swab for a COVID test. So yeah, great birthday right there. <laughs> but I was going to fly over and meet her in Nepal and then we were going to go and hike the Annapurna circuit. So I'd actually trained through last winter to not be such a fat bastard in the spring because yeah. I was scared of dying on this hike. Yeah. Uh, That's yeah. always a good motivator. Yeah, exactly. Fear, fear of death. <laughs> So yeah, nine day hike at elevation. I'm like, oh God, I better actually not just hibernate for this next five months. I'd like to crack a beer. Okay. We've been talking a lot. I've had multiple coffees and we have some beers in front of us. Uh, do you want to start off slow or you want to start off a little bit quicker? You're the brewmaster. You tell me what- Oh man, I hate that word. We have some Jester King, some Le Petit Prince. This is a breakfast beer, 2.9%. Beautiful oh, nice. sour from you know one of the best sour breweries in the world. And the coolest thing that I found about these guys, we went down there in 2018. Um, I'm like, Linda, why are we going to Austin? She's like, uh, we're going to go to Jester King to drink beers and we're going to eat a bunch of barbecue. And I'm like, that's the greatest reason yeah. for a vacation yeah. I've ever heard. That's cool. I love how you say you hate the term brewmaster, but it says in bold letters on your notes that you want to only be referred to as Mr. Brewmaster. <laughs> you wrote those notes? Yeah. I'm sure as fuck yeah. didn't. Yeah. I find it a bit pretentious. Is it like when someone who's a doctor insists on being referred, referred to, to as a doctor? doctor? Yeah. yeah. Especially when they have a PhD from a third-rate university in social sciences. Sorry, did I say that out loud? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, we got this 2.9% uh, wild fermented sour. These guys have a great relationship with uh, Blind Enthusiasm because, of course, Greg used to you know have Bioware Studio in Austin. So, he knew all of the Austin scene while it was coming up. Cheers. Mm. Fuck, that's good. If you haven't been down there, it's amazing. They do experience in a way that I don't think anyone else has ever come close to. It's a farm half an hour outside of Austin, and you just wander around with a beer in your hand between multiple bars, get yourself some wood-fired pizza, play some bocce, you know, like kids running around the place. They're now growing all of their own stuff. They do farm tours. It's just this sprawling beer mecca, yeah. you know, and each one of the four bars has different things on tap, different bottles that they're cracking at any moment. And it's just, it's something else. Yeah. It truly is. So when I talk about, you know, like building a brewery to focus on your community and also being an experience, you know, make your tasting room an experience that people want to go to, yeah. that's the shit that matters. And there is no better example than Jester King. What's cool about that though, too, is there's a legitimacy to traveling to check out other breweries and see how they do things, right? Like if I, I like to travel when I can and check out other festivals and people always laugh and be like, oh yeah, you're doing research, but there's, there's a truth to it, right? It's it, like when you, when you stumble upon a brewery like this and you're describing, it's just like, oh my God, like you're just like, it's like you're experiencing something totally new in a world that you don't know that you could experience something totally new. Yeah, and I think that's the thing. This is what keeps me really excited about our industry and about where we go. You know, I I talk a lot about how there's a there's a playbook for growth in craft beer these days, and it's not that difficult. But 
we keep finding new people who do things differently. And that's what keeps shit fresh and exciting. That's that's what really sort of drives us. Yeah. No, a hundred percent. And and it's just I, I feel like it's sometimes when you feel like, okay, there's nothing more out there. There's nothing more that could be exciting. You're like just about to be proven wrong, which is so cool. Speaking of, the thing that which really sort of, you know, gets us going within Bear Hill right now is what we've got happening on the whiskey side. So we have a warehouse with a few hundred barrels in there of whiskey. Our oldest whiskey is six and a half years old, I think now. Yeah. Um, Kyle actually distilled that stuff back in Fort Mac in early 2013. And so far, what we've seen coming out of that program is pretty damn good. That's exciting. Yeah, it's super exciting. We have the luxury of not having to release stuff at three years because we can fund the whiskey program with the other aspects of our business. Right. So yeah, like, you know, we were the first uh, craft distillers in Alberta. Sorry, Dave Farron, but uh, it's true. Um, <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> the fight is on. He knows. He yeah. knows. But uh, yeah, so we have uh, the oldest whiskey around for Alberta craft distillers. And yeah, we're really, really excited about that. We're talking about maybe, maybe releasing some this year. That's cool. I know Brett was talking to me about the possibility of doing something in around the Jasper Beer and Spirit Festival for 2022. Yep. Yeah, which is which is cool. And Bryce, who kind of spearheads your your spirit yep. department, what a perfect guy to do that. Because like I've known him since I met him. He was brewing at Yellowhead in Edmonton when I first met him. And uh, he's so chill. And I feel like that's the personality you need for... <laughs> Someone that's going to be in charge of whiskey. Exactly. You can't have like this like manic nail chewer like me. We need Bryce just to tell us, guys, like chill the fuck out. Yeah. Like this is going to take 10 years at a minimum. Yeah. Yeah. He's laying down barrels and laying down our whiskey program thinking of his grandchildren in that role. You know, he's thinking about not him ending up blending those barrels for a release, but the distiller after that and the distiller after that. And that's the kind of perspective that you need in that world. Yeah. You know, we're over here banging on about, oh my God, which fucking IPA is the hypiest, haziest bullshit this week? You know, and he's like, it's cool, guys. I got this. Yeah. Yeah. Talk to me in 60 years. (laughs) And he's got such a cool story. Like he was so fun to have on the podcast because- you just, if you were to look at him and just make a judgment call mm. and be like, I know him, I know blah, blah, blah. And then you actually hear a story. It's like, okay, I didn't see any of that coming. Like, you know, grew up, a, became a nurse, you know, like how he kind of came into what he is, is so, such gonna, a cool story. I'm going to throw him under the bus right now as well. Bryce okay. looks like a professional distiller. He is a professional distiller. Once upon a time, he was ripped and had a six pack uh, playing some pretty competitive rugby. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So there are photos floating around. Maybe the internet has some, but uh, yeah. Bryce, sorry, buddy. Dude, this was awesome. Thanks for doing this, man. Cheers. Cheers. Next time you want somebody to rant about bullshit, give me a call. You'll be my resident bullshitter now. All right, buddy. Thanks, dude. Cheers. Hey, everyone. I just wanted to thank you for listening to the Let's Meet for a Beer podcast. If you enjoy the conversations, please rate us where you download your podcasts and share with your friends. For more information on the projects our team is working on, please visit letsmeetforabeer.com. Be sure to join us next week for a new conversation and have an awesome day. Oh, 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 oh,